Hello, I'm Claire and welcome to CardiCast, a glam podcast brought to you by New Cardigan. Our February 2020 Melbourne Cardi Party was a tour of the Art Centre, which include their archival collection store, Australian Music Vault and Research Centre. The tour was hosted by a panel of curators, which I'll leave to Nick to introduce in a moment. However, as a word of warning to our dear listeners, we walked through the Art Centre during particularly busy periods and some of the audio is a little bit challenging. We've done our best to make it as clear for you as possible and we hope that you enjoy the amazing things that the Art Centre team has to share with us. Okay, we've got Alison Wishard who is the Head of Curatorial Team at the Art Centre. We've got Claudia um, Funder who is the Coordinator of Research Services. We have Margaret Marshall, who is a curator of theatre and popular entertainment. And we have Ian Jackson, who is the assistant curator of theatre and popular entertainment. And we have Olivia Jackson, who is a curator of Australian music halls. So thank you. Very nice jacket. And a very big thank you to the Art Centre team for coming out. Such a big part of the team. We really appreciate it. So I'll hand over to Alison. Um, Thank you, everybody. Hello everybody. Okay, hello. Thank you for coming. We hope you really enjoy being at the Art Centre. And before we go any further, I'd like to acknowledge the peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation on whose lands that were never ceded we are gathered on and pay my respects and our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We've got 690,000 items and then a few more in the Australian Performing Arts Collection. When we were thinking about how are we going to slice through the collection to just show you some of those treasures tonight, we took inspiration from today being Valentine's Day. So many of the items that you see will have a love-inspired theme. Lovely. We're going to show you the Australian Performing Arts Collection or the bits of it that are stored downstairs our research service which is upstairs and the Australian Music Vault which is over in the theatres building. So there is a lot of moving around and it's going to feel like primary school. I won't ask you to hold hands with your buddy but please stay together, okay? Well, our art collection is in the same department as the Australian Performing Arts Collection where like, both the collections are um, looked after here. So, yeah, it's a really important part of the art centres. Um, collections, those beautiful paintings, a lot of which were commissioned for the buildings when they were built. So take a last look at your plush surrounds, we're going back house. Um, So this is our main um, store on site, obviously to give you your bearings we're under the grass that's between the two buildings, the Hamer Hall and the main um, theatres building. Um, I'll give you a quick background and then we'll just look at some objects. Um, We don't have a lot of time uh, so we'll have to be pretty speedy today. Um, So the Australian Performing Arts Collection was started in the mid-1970s, so before the Arts Centre was built, but it was started by people associated with the Arts Centre. Um, People that recognised that Australia's performing arts history was in in jeopardy of disappearing. Um, And in particular, it was timed with the closure of JC Williamson Theatres Limited, which was the largest theatrical management in the Southern Hemisphere for about 100 years. folded in um, 1976-77. So we ended up as a foundation collection with the Melbourne Archive of Williamson's, which had been stored at um, Her Majesty's Theatre in uh, Melbourne and the Comedy Theatre as well. 
There are other parts of the Williamson collection from Sydney that are with the National Library and the State Library of New South Wales. So it's a, it's a massive organisation that's represented. We quickly grew quite um, audaciously by having a really fantastic donation from Dame Nellie Melba's granddaughter, Lady mm. Pamela Vesti, of costumes worn by Melba on stage. Um, so a collection that's of international significance. Um, and that was followed not long after by the first of many donations by Barry Humphreys. Um, and we have costumes mainly worn by Edna Everidge. Um, we'll show you one of those today. Um, but the, the costume collection is also supported by a really fantastic archive with photographs and scripts and artworks and other documents um, that have been produced by Barry over many years. Other fun facts, we collect in five key areas, subject areas, so theatre, um, which Ian and I are tasked with, which is the biggest part of the collection. Music, dance, opera and circus as well. So circus is quite different. For, there are other... Uh, performing arts collections that collect in those other areas, but circus is often left out, so that's something really special to us. That's probably a good enough start. Yeah. We're really happy to take questions as we go, um, being mindful of time, so just sing out and we'll take you through and show some of the things we've got out. We've had a bit of fun with the selection. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so, yeah, so love in all its many forms. This poster is, I think, a really great kind of example of, you know, very bold visual approach of Martin Sharp, well, I'm Australian um, post-graphic artist. The Paris Theatre was a very short-lived um, Sydney-based theatre company. Basically, the old Tote Theatre Company started to collapse, stopped doing any kind of contemporary Australian work, so, a group of actors and directors and people like Jim Sharman and Patrick White and writers sort of set up this company. Um, they ran for a year and then they kind of in turn collapsed and out of the ashes kind of came the Sydney Theatre Company. So at the time, some turmoil. And they had a theatre on Hyde Park in Sydney, which um, then got knocked down and turned into fats. But yeah, so, so they did a, this production of um, Visions by, by Louis Nara which is it's a play set in 19th century Paraguay actually but you know as with a lot of theatre it's kind of romance and love and, and sex and death similar in in its sort of well, very different looking but actually very similar in intent this is a beautiful silk program but you know you think about you know it's all about conveying information about a production um, this was actually this sort of bill of a double bill I guess with the play or a sort of comic opera Love in a Village and then a burlesque called Cupid. Um, this happened at the Royal Victoria Theatre in Hobart in 1843 so this is one of the um, older items in the collection but I mean these programs they're really beautiful you know printed very much in the style of the time which is to you know list who is in to the performances, some of the key songs, some of the key musical items as well, so to give people a good idea of what, what they might be in for. That appears to be printed on material and yes. not paper. Is it's, that us yes. like usual of the time or is it just for this particular It's paper? more for special performances, so things like Royal Command performances in London, um, opening nights, you know, government yeah. house kind of do, mm -hmm. that kind of high level um, 
performance. I don't know yeah. particularly why, why this, this one was, was yeah. but it was um, Is it under silk? the patron. It's silk, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, under the patronage of Colonel Elliot. So clearly a... an important event. Yeah, so um, yes, under the yeah. patronage of him and the, yeah, they say the offices of Her Majesty's Garrison and there's a new military band there as well, which gives mm. you a bit of a sense of Hobart at the time being a kind of <laughs> a bit of a garrison town as well as uh, but also a place where you know entertainment was was happening as well. So they, um, I guess because it's silk and ribbons, it could be just that whole sort of like sexy, feminine kind of thing, yeah, almost. Yeah. I guess, but but more high quality yeah. special yeah. souvenirs. Not, not tarty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that one's actually in remarkably good condition. A lot of them have been folded over the years and split along the the folds. So that that's amazing, actually. Someone would have kicked it. It would have been a souvenir. Yes, yes. absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of people have folded them up, mm, yeah. put them in their hanky drawer or something, and they've split yeah. over time. Um, so, yeah, yeah that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Quite beautiful. Um, so, racing through, another really important part of our collection is um, stage design, so both costume and set design. And we have designs ranging from the 19th century up to contemporary works. Um, and so these are a really great example of a more recent production, the date of which escapes me, 2000 so. Yes. Yeah. Romeo and Juliet, classic love story, done by the Australian Ballet, and the designs are by the fashion designer Akira Izagawa. And they're absolutely beautiful. I believe these were done after the event. He did them as a, a record of his work, whereas most costume designs are done as a, a piece of information for the makers, really, and, and for the directors and to show the, the concept. Um, and you can see the absolutely beautiful, fragile fabrics and techniques, which he's so known for. The challenge of someone like that working with a performing arts company, of course, is that his, his clothes are usually for the catwalk or you know, very sort of ethereal mm. and delicate. This is a dance piece. Those costumes work really hard. They're, they're being tossed around. They have to be washed or dry cleaned after performances. So I think these costumes didn't survive after the production. We, we don't have them. We do have some of his costumes and they're absolutely beautiful. But you can see something like this, not really a great technique for um, you know, a dance work, but they're absolutely gorgeous designs. And this is quite a common thing on costume designers to have us, you know, swatches of the material, so yeah. you, can, you can see how they're. they're yeah. You don't have the Australian Ballet's whole archive. Well, we do. Well, you do. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So the Australian Ballet had a fantastic archive that they managed themselves, and it was their own history, but also dance in Australia prior to them. And we did acquire that in about in the nineties, um, so, and we still work very closely with the company. They're fantastic. So, yes, these came through then. That must be huge. Obviously, we have to be selective from what we take, um, just from a, a space point of view. Uh, how does that selection process sorry, work? How, how does, does it, it yeah, when oh, you say that you're selective? Well, like, that's, that's a big part of our work as curators, is to work with mainly donors. We, we mainly get um, material donated to us. We're actually inundated with offers. Um, we have something on the books all the time. Um, so we, we work with the donors and talk to them about what we might select, um, what's appropriate, we check for duplication, we think about what's representative, 
Um, with, with costumes, we might think about who wore it, who designed it, what was the production, um, try to weigh up all the elements of significance that we can um, with our material. Yeah. So these are some other designs. Um, these are from production of Madame Butterfly. They were designed by Sydney designer Jenny Tate, who did absolutely beautiful work. Sadly, she's no longer alive. She did a lot of opera and theatre and some dance work. So is this for the opera? This is for the opera. The thing about Jenny's work is that she was particularly good at conveying character through her designs and directors loved that about her. They, they weren't just instructional costume making designs. They, the way she positioned the characters on the stage, their stance, their expressions really says, says something about the feel of the production and um, the character themselves. She also used really large scale paper. That's quite quite a big design. Most of them are more like a, a four or a bit bigger, um, but these are quite large. Um, very beautiful. So we have, um, I'm not sure how many designs, but probably over 10,000 in the collection. It's a really big part of what we do. So it's our collection's performing arts, but all elements of it. It's the stars on the stage, but it's the, the creative process behind putting on productions as well. And we're really keen to keep that balance. Um, and not just the stars on the stage, the troopers as well. <laughs> you know, mu music is obviously a, a big part of the collection. And one musician whose who's work is, is very interesting, I think represented in the collection is Nick Cave. He has over a number of years donated his sort of archive um, which includes all kinds of material but especially his notebooks that, that he's sort of which give real insight into his kind of creative process and his kind of working methods so this is an, an example of one of his notebooks the kind of love link here really is there's a, a, a petal that he stuck in here from from Susie his wife who you know he has written very eloquently about the love that you know he has for her and and uh, the, the strength of their relationship he uses his notebooks to note you know obviously song lyrics or song lyric ideas as well as it's a great line where he's collected words that yeah. are, of, are of interest and they're in alphabetical order yeah. um, and he's got the, the word and the definition and yeah um, he, he's obviously just really interested in that um the wordplay and the lyrics that are possible from that. Yeah, and you know, so some of these, some of these would sort of end up in as as formed songs. Some of them would just be kind of ideas that he, you know, he was playing with, and that maybe didn't didn't end up as a song. Sticks in all kinds of little bits and pieces, and again another another pressed pressed flower. So this this sort of you know they show they show the man in all his his complexity. I suppose that there's the sort of you know the sort of the rock star persona but there's also the the sort of um his sort of personal relationships and and his sort of private life as well so she's very generous for a living yeah. artist to, to donate that absolutely yes yeah. it's a little strange yeah. that he is alive but you're yes. here yeah. this yeah. archival yeah. collection of, yeah. his, of his work no. 
it is wonderful that, that he's sort of willing to, to open up, I suppose, mm -hmm. that, that sort of side of himself. We did have a question. How open are they? Have they been digitised? Are they no, uh, some of them have been, but there's yeah. copyright, um, particularly lyrics, there's copyright issues around those, and he doesn't always write. He's, he's not the only writer sometimes, so there's sort of layers of copyright, um, but also we just have a capacity to, to do them all. Um, but we should just say that we've um, collaborated with the Royal Danish Library in Copenhagen mm -hmm. on an ICAG exhibition, which is about to open March. Very soon, yes. Yeah. Um, so a lot of yes. the ICAG collection is not here with us at the moment, it's over in Denmark. If you were wondering why there's only one notebook in this box, <laughs> um, all the rest of them are in, are in Denmark. So, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so our director, Janine Brand, closely on that uh, project with the curators at the library and also Nick, um, who has been very involved in it. Um, Janine also curated an exhibition um, several years ago with him that's held here. Uh, so How come it's in Denmark? Sorry? The Nick Cave shows in Denmark. Yeah, yeah. they obviously have a huge following. He yeah. has a huge following there. Yeah. 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 So, I don't think we're all going to get to go, unfortunately. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> The material goes. And, yeah. Another sort of music thing. Okay. Yeah. So yes, the, the Beatles arrived in Australia in 1964. It was all you know bigger than Ben Hur. This particular letter kind of speaks to fandom and the kind of you know the fans who wrote in to the organizer of the tour it was Ken Bordziak of um, Aztec Services. This particular one is basically a, a woman in Tasmania saying you know are the Beatles going to come to Tasmania? <laughs> the answer was no, but you know, she, she gave some good reasons why they, why they she said that she thought, she thought they would like Tasmania because it was so much like England. So, yeah. This speaks for itself. Uh, Jason Donovan, the Straight From The Heart board game. Um, test your, your knowledge of Jason and his, his life as it was to date. Which we have been doing this Which we have been doing. Um, this is a donation from Jason. It is not. Um, it actually, yes, it appears to have been bought from a from an op shop actually <laughs> so but yeah no it's it's a lovely kind of example of the sort of fan engagement i suppose and he is currently performing at the state theater in chicago for uh, until the end of next week so i'm sure i'd be thrilled to know we had this out <laughs> <laughs> he may not know it exists you may, you may not <laughs> these are and um, there's two the same um Props from the Tivoli Theatre, which Tivoli was a vaudeville and variety main theatre. There was a circuit around Australia and, and a theatre here in Melbourne. And, and so these props would have been held by showgirls and um, dancing and parading. So these are really rare. So there's not a lot of um, costumes or props remaining from the Tivoli Theatre. They closed in 1966 in Melbourne and was really hit by the emergence of tele television and the changing people's entertainment. Um, so just interests. reading the label, this is circa 1930s and 40s. Yeah, yeah. That isn't pretty amazing. Pretty good, yeah. Nick. Yeah. So we're gonna have a look at some costumes. So Thomas Dentner. Yes. Oh, and we have delivered the Valentine's Day dress for you on Valentine's yeah. Day. Yeah. So, um, late 80s creation. Um, and it um, is designed by Stephen Adnett, who's a London based designer. Yeah. Um, from the 1980s, Barry Humphreys worked 
with two main, mainly two designers. One, Bill Goodwin, who's Australian, who did a lot of the Australiana kind of ethno costumes, and Stephen Adnett, who's London-based, who did the very sort of built three-dimensional creations. This one's quite tame, actually. But... Suddenly, everything <laughs> yeah. I'm wearing is like yeah. in Cupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, and apparently, this was um, designed with all the what was it? All the love tokens to radiate Edna's loving and caring nature. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we have we have a lot of Edna frocks, but we also have costumes worn by various other characters, particularly Sandy Stone and Sir Les Patterson. Try not to touch the Les Patterson ones if we can help it. <laughs> pretty gross. Um, do you, do you they're in a park. Or do you keep them in boxes? There's a mixture. Yeah. yeah. So obviously um, hanging takes up less space, but, but, they need, but yeah. the weight. So we have to keep assessing what we can do. Um, the Melbourne costumes are all now in boxes because they're incredibly fragile being over 100 years old. Um, and some of the Edna's, are, a lot of them, the Stephen Edna ones are made with um, latex and foams and paint and things and they're quite tricky in a conservation yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. This is a bit of a contrast. It's a beautiful traditional clown costume, but it's a great example of a circus costume that's had numerous lives. So it was first worn in the 1950s at Luna Park by a performer called Ron Broadway. Um, and it went on to be used in the 70s and 80s in the new theatre, a uh, new circus movement from which Circus Oz sprang from. And it was, was used with Circus Oz and Sue Broadway, Ron's niece, great niece, great niece, was a founder of Circus Oz and she donated this costume to us. So lovely sort of traditional sense of costuming and the mix of traditional circus with the, the new modern version as well. And there's a photo of it here. So this is a slide. Circus Oz life. Oh, good text. Yes. I'm going to be too busy. A little bit of Azzle Dazzle, and you know, in case we've all been a bit heteronormative so far as well, this is the dress that um, Ali wore um, at her first appearance at Sydney Mardi Gras back in 1994. And this was it was quite a seminal moment in her career. I think it, you know, represented a moment in which she, for the first time, really kind of, you know, embraced her kind of LGBTQ fans, but also saw the, the performance was so rapturously received. She went on stage at three o'clock in the morning, um, and you know, and it made her kind of think a bit about her performance and her stage presence. And so, her next tour, she embraced some of the, the aesthetic that she had sort of, you know, tested out there and there was a bit of a Mardi Gras segment within her tour from, from then onwards. So, a, a kind of a, a bit of a, a seminal moment in, in her career as well. So, and obviously beautifully themed for love parts and, and, and feathers and, and everything. So that is uh, one, of, one of many highly so we could obviously show you way more. Um, we're just getting started, but uh, yeah. they're on a timeline. It is five seven. So we probably need to escort you out and do a little swap. Um, so any questions on the way as we go now? I don't know all that much about the preservation of materials, but mm -hmm. what, they're in bags. What 
is yeah, the material the, the bags the are um, par silk which mm-hmm. is a I believe it's a synthetic but it's a acid free neutral kind of fabric so they're partly covered so that they don't catch on, on each other and to protect them from dust and that sort of thing as well so that seems to work quite well. We are um, trialling Tyvek as well as um, Tyvek fabric line. Um, these are some Joan Sutherland costumes that we've acquired um, from Opera Australia. Um, so they're really bulky compared to a, a sling line Kylie. They're very, you know, opera beaded heavy numbers. Um, so that sort of uh, cover seems to be a bit more manageable. I'm assuming that that's pretty much all cool storage. Yeah. We also we also have offsite storage yeah. um, at Forth in North Melbourne, but yeah. um, so probably think about it, collections in there, and then about two thirds out offsite. But yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously that's you know. Climate I mean, working with us is always a very. Um, I think interesting prospect for a performer because what they do is so ephemeral and so of a moment that then when we come in and say so we'd like to put that in a museum sometimes that's a very hard concept for them to get their head around I think a lot of the time they don't they're not thinking for a museum of course they're not thinking for a museum and so the first time they talk to us is often the first time they're thinking about what they do in a permanent way which is I think always a very hard place to I always find it interesting when you look at things that are for performing collections, especially when it's costumes, and you see a costume like on a model, and then you see a picture of it, and you're like, oh yeah, and then you look at it on the person, and you're like, ah, that's the reason why it's kind of important. We've got some good so you'll notice we had industry people greeting you as you came through. That's something we really wanted the music industry to be present from the very beginning. So the people in these videos are real people at their real jobs who allowed us to throw a camera on them and have them welcome you to the exhibition. So this exhibition has been open since 2017 and it's a bit of a rotating cast of characters. So when we started working on it, it was initially pitched to us as a Hall of Fame exhibition, but a lot of the time a Hall of Fame show becomes about who's not in the Hall of Fame as much as it does with who is in it. And we really wanted it to be able to profile different stories from the industry, so the journeymen, the people who maybe never had mainstream success, but really made an impact. The people who crafted the guitars that songs were written on as a gesture behind you, there's a making guitar there, making being made and operated in Melbourne since the 1930s, continuously by the May family. And a Hall of Fame doesn't allow you to do that. We also didn't want to do a chronological show because as you've noticed, we have a very small exhibition space and if you start doing things chronologically, you get to 1957 and you're out of space. So we came up with themes that were consistent across genres but also across uh, time periods which allow us to bring performers in and out of the exhibition space and tell different stories in different ways. So I'm going to talk to this case because I've got a new object I'm very excited about. So if we move So this case is, the theme is two-way traffic. It's about people who move to Australia from overseas to make their mark on the industry here, but also people who have represented us on the world stage. So this red dress at the end here belonged to Olivia Newton-John. She lent it to us for exhibition and has actually, we've just been able to acquire it. Um, So now 
it's come into the permanent collection. Olivia was born in England. She had a very European upbringing. Her father was an MI5 officer and her grandfather was a friend of Einstein's. And she moved here at the age of eight. She went to University High right around the corner and then at the age of 15 won a talent competition and became an international superstar quite early. So from that point on she spent most of her career in Britain and America, um, moving between the two. Um, this dress was designed by a woman named Fleur Tamaya. Now Fleur is very hard to Google, but was a fashion designer for the music industry for over 30 years. She designed the glam rock aesthetic, she dressed Motley Crue, she put Rod Stewart in skin-tight spandex, she dressed the Jackson 5, you know, like incredible performers. She cultivated what their aesthetic was on stage, but as yet doesn't have a Wikipedia page, it's quite hard to find online. So when we acquired this dress, we were very lucky to be put in touch with Fleur, who, as it turns out, has moved back to Melbourne. Her and Olivia met at a pool party in the 1970s at the house of John Farrar, author of the song Hopelessly Devoted to You. And from that moment onwards, they were not only collaborators, but they were lifelong friends. So Fleur took Olivia from chiffon-clad country star through the totally hot leathers era and right through to the physical outfit, which Fleur made for her. So Fleur not only was a friend and collaborator, but she actually helped Olivia cultivate who she was on stage and how she presented herself to the world. Having the stress in the collection now allows us to tell Olivia's story, but also to reflect Fleur's incredible contribution. And Fleur is going to come in and record interviews with us, and we're going to get her life chronology, and we're going to try and get her Wikipedia pages and place her story within the context of the broader Australian music narrative. So that's an example of how we work with our artists. It's always it's very, very rewarding to spend time with someone who is curious as to why a museum would even want to talk to them and to get them to the point where their mums and dads are proud of them. Because that's often what we do. <laughs> Make the mums and dads proud. I actually just want to applaud that for a brief moment. Like just <laughs> somebody that nobody knew and now like there's so much input and she gets a platform now and I'm just like she's amazing and she's contributed you would know her work across the board you know she dressed David Lee Roth you know you know her work but you don't know her name so we're really really working hard at the moment to make sure we can place her in that context and then our brand new object that we installed just yesterday and has not been seen in 10 years is this leather jacket now this belonged to a little gentleman named Bon Scott um, and I say little because I, there's no way I could fit in it um, and I'll, I'll show you via our digital label here. Um, this came to us, he passed away tragically at the age of 33 and after he passed away his family donated this jacket, they offered it to us as a way of preserving his legacy forevermore. The reason that they knew that we existed is because of this lovely little number in the back which belonged to Angus Young. So the story with Angus is that our director, Janine, who is still our director, in the 1980s wrote ACDC a letter. She's very confident. She just wrote to them and said, we're starting this museum. We were still in our nascent years. We'd really love to represent ACDC. Do you have a poster or something like that? And then like a couple of days later, a box turned up at stage door and this was inside. 
Now the really important thing about this suit is that it's not one of his later ones that were made for him and manufactured. This one was actually sewn for him by his sister. And the reason that they uh, decided on this is that skyhooks were big at the time and skyhooks had a very elaborate stage presence and ACDC were like, oh, maybe we need a little bit of a thing. So they all had a character, but they only did it for one gig and then they were like, this is not us, and they abandoned it. Whereas Angus retained his character. And it was actually invented in collaboration with his sister because he learned guitar when he was a school kid. And he would come home, full school uniform, plug in his guitar, put down his bag, and start playing ACDC riffs. So this for her was him as a musician. This is where he started from and this is where he still remains because he's still wearing these suits. Um, and if you have a look on the patch on the front, that's the first one of the first times that the uh, very iconic lightning bolt appears and it's hand sewn by Margaret, Angus's sister. And so now the boys, as of yesterday, are back together. And I'm gonna direct us, I'm not quite sure timing wise, we're good, to another school costume. So if we come behind us, although actually I might just speak for a brief moment about hip hop because I haven't run out of time yet. <laughs> Last time I was, I was still in Angus when I had my warning. Um, so the hip hop case is a part of one of the underlying themes of the exhibition. So we identified the concept of identity and belonging as something that brings musicians and fans together. This case is the only case where we dedicate the whole case to a particular genre. When we opened, it was punk new wave, and now it's hip hop. There are a surprising amount of similarities between the hip hop crowd and the punk crowd because they both existed in the underground. And I think when you exist in the underground, it makes you very aware of the fact that what you're doing is special and it's linking you to other people in a way that you can't quite put your finger on. But when you are not embraced by the mainstream, you have to keep all your stuff yourself. So, believe it or not, the punks and the hip-hop artists are the best archivists. <laughs> they really, really are. You know, they'll be, like, referencing some very obscure gig they did at Hammersmith Place in the 1980s, and they'll have the original flyer. That flyer may be run over by a car, <laughs> but they've got it. And so some of the earliest objects here, if you have a look in the front, this is a 1984 boombox hand done by DJ Peril, who would later, later go on to be a part of 1200 Techniques, but he really embodies the concept of the four pillars of hip hop, which is dance, music, rapping, and <laughs> turntablism, thank you. I was like, six months ago I was reeling them off. There's also a fifth pillar, which is knowledge. So you can be a member of a hip hop crew if you are not a turntablist or a dancer by keeping the knowledge of your crew up here. So there's actually a group archivist role in a hip hop crew. I'm gonna, yeah. And also that it's, it's a very oral tradition. It's a lot like the circus. Things are passed down through um, allegiances and it, it's been a really, interesting learning experience for me. I'll just direct you to another very famous school outfit. This one belonged to Chrissy Amphlett and she donated it to us before she passed away. Chrissy, there's a lot of different accounts as to how she got the idea to wear a school uniform but it is often thought that she probably saw Angus Young performing and thought that's a good idea. She was a very, very shy person and not a very confident performer. There was actually a point where Divinals tried to fire her because she was too shy on stage. However, anyone who's seen Chrissy Amphlett perform knows that she is not a shy person, but it was through the creation of a character, which was this school, it's kind of a ratty schoolgirl character, she was able to perform 
confidently. And so she'd wear these school uniforms and she'd often sew like little rat toys to her and sort of like create this persona to perform with. And that this is what gave her the confidence to perform in the way that she did. And this very beautiful mic stand in the front, which isn't very beautiful, but is beautiful to me, was made for her by the team on the set of Monkey Grip, and it's actually a light fixture from the set of the film. She would never have a stand for it. She would carry it around with her while she was performing, and it, it lights up, so it glows blue. Um, and someone was asking me before about the difference between looking at a costume and seeing the performer in the costume. So if you come around to the digital label here, I'll just very quickly show you. So here's a photograph of her wearing the school costume holding the mic stand. And in the space behind you, which we're not going to have time to visit, it's the amplifier. You can actually watch footage of her performing with this mic stand on stage on Countdown. So we really wanted to have the experience because it's, it is a static experience seeing objects on mannequins. We really wanted you to have somewhere where you could go and be surrounded by music. So if you go in there, it's actually a 360 footage from being in the audience of Countdown, Sunbury Music Festival, Triple J on Earth, which has a lot of festival footage. And next week we're out, about to release new footage of the Slam Rally the largest cultural rally in history, 20,000 people took to the streets to passionately advocate for live music in Australia. So we've got the beautiful... You were there! <laughs> You're my first person on a tour who was there. <laughs> um, we've got the accord that the government signed after that rally saying we agree to your terms. But that doesn't, I think, exemplify what it was like to be in a crowd of 220,000 people with Paul Kelly standing up on stage saying, these venues were my university. Yeah, yeah. You will be able to now stand in the middle of that crowd in that space, which is what's next. Um, and now we have to move on, I'm afraid. Welcome, everybody, to the research service. This is the last <laughs> part of your tour. So you've been downstairs to the collection, you've been over to AMV. Right, so this is the last little secret bit. This is the research service, I'm Claudia, and this little room is available as a, a reading room space for people to come in and do research and use the collection as a primary source for their work. And you can book, on, book in on a Monday or a Tuesday, so it's Mondays and Tuesdays only by appointment through me, take a card if you'd like to take a card, also behind you. And all sorts of people come in and use the collection to research their family history or a show that they're putting on or performing in or a book or a thesis or a project or all manner of things. Last week, I was saying to the other group, last week I had a, a ballet point shoe maker. Mm. He makes mm. point shoes. Yeah. And he came in to have a look at the point shoes to see, just have a look out of interest really, to see how they're constructed and you know the range and so forth and was showing me the difference between an early 20th century Russian made, handmade, hand built point shoe and the more manufactured English, slightly later point shoes. It was fascinating fascinating, so we pulled out Margot Fontaine's point shoe and Adeline Genet's point shoes, all these different shoes and that was terrific so that's quite different other people do, oh, Rowan Brown came in to research The Boy From Oz when he was in that role. Recently, so toward the end of last year, we had Gordon Frost Productions in. They're about to put on The Secret Garden and they needed to refer to their collection here, to the scripts, to work out 
part of their production process, I think. They needed a particular script that they used last time and so they were looking through the collection to find that to piece together because apparently the show changed a lot when it went on tour so there's not one definitive sort of version in Verticomas that they had so they were trying to piece the story together a little bit. So they came in and did some research. Um, the Australian Ballet came in and looked at ballet costumes in order to reproduce some of the early Sydney dance costumes for productions they put on last year in, in celebration of... I've lost the Graham name. Murphy's Thank you, Graham Murphy's 50th choreographic anniversary. Yes. Yeah, the Graham Murphy word just went out of the head. Uh, so, yeah, all sorts of people coming in. And then academics, family historians. My great-grandmother was a showgirl at Tivoli. What have you got? Come on in. Um, and is her name in all the programs? No, I'm afraid it's not. But come on in. We'll show you some things. Another fascinating one, this is one of my favourites, uh, was a woman who said, I'm doing research on Joan Sutherland's production of the Haydn opera La Nemea, blah, 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 which is an Orpheus, Orpheus of the Underworld mm-hmm. setting. That's what I did. I went, all right, Orpheus, I know Orfeo, I know the Gluck version, I know the Monteverdi version, I don't know the Haydn version, I'm so sorry. And the Nick <laughs> um, Cave version. And the Nick Cave version. <laughs> I don't know the Nick Cave version. And apparently this play... Uh, this opera was put on by Haydn in 17, early 1790s in London. George III, king at that time, shut it down, sent the soldiers in, kicked everybody out, closed it, said, you're not putting this opera on, you can't do it, because they thought the conductor was a French spy from the French Revolution. <laughs> that much is known, and so her research continues, Whoa. which is the exciting part. So her question to me was, what do you have on Joan Sutherland's production? Joan Sutherland then put that opera on in 1968 in Venice. And Maria Callas had put it on too. So what is it about this opera that the women like and they want to put the opera in? And what have you got on Joan Sutherland's Venetian opera? And my answer was, not much. (laughs) We have mostly her Australian material rather than all her international material. But I said, come on in and we'll have a look at what we've got. And she found it. She found references to it in programs and different places. I've got no idea what that is. Oh, no, that's, but it's an interruption and I might need to just move yep. this on very soon. So when you went downstairs and you saw all the wonderful things in archival boxes and cases, if you want to use them as a researcher, you contact Claudia and say, I'm researching and um, she will retrieve things from our archives downstairs and bring them up here for you to look at under a supervised situation so yeah so that's what I was doing for those sort of stories I've just mentioned retrieve the things from downstairs and you look at them up here the researchers don't get to go downstairs like you have tonight there's no fossicking through boxes so people do need to know what they're looking for a little bit usually person place production We'll get you going into the sort of research end of things. So our collection is not really online. A little bit is online. Um, the books are through Trove, but the archive downstairs is only a very small amount online. So Claudia is your portal right. into that collection. And you can find her through the cards or you can find her through our website. And I'm right-handed. I have to go to here. So you go to... Arts in Melbourne. Arts in Melbourne. And then you go to Menu... And then you go to exhibitions and collections and then you get research and access. And once you go in there, you will get scrolled out and there'll be an online inquiry form. Okay? Yes. 
do you ever have people that don't know exactly what they're looking for? Yes, <laughs> yes. I often have people that don't know what they're looking for. So we have to have conversations about, uh, well, what they, the broader sense of what they're looking for because they'll know the area that they're in. One woman I had over from the UK last year is researching 19th century British actresses who who stayed in Australia. Mm-hmm. What have you got? <laughs> oh, right, okay, well let's start with the premise that in the 19th century everybody was British in the country because it was yeah. before Federation. And she said, oh, I didn't think of that. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> So we're looking at actresses. What have we got on actresses? Well, it's a performing arts collection. <laughs> there's, there's quite a lot. So what sort of actress? Are you looking musical? Are you looking straight theatre? Are you looking this? So we really started from there and just started pulling threads. She had done a PhD on Jenny Hill, who's an English music hall performer so that was the beginning so okay let's go music hall and let's see so we'd sort of investigate that together and I said well let's start with the Williamson 19th century Williamson scrapbooks so I just brought up all the scrapbooks I said I'm so sorry they're not indexed to the degree that you would need them indexed away you go and she physically just went through them and I think she went through most of them over sort of a three-week period or so and found people she knew found people she didn't knew know looked up newspapers in Trove and realised who the important people were and where they were but she was that was very broad (laughs) that was very broad so yes people do come in not knowing what they want they'll find something so come back again as a researcher come and visit or you know with another group we'd love to have you all back again can we just say big thank you to the staff that have spent their Friday evening That was our first Melbourne Cuddy Party of 2020. In order of appearance, we heard Alison Richard, Head of the Arts Centre Curatorial Team, Margaret Marshall, Curator of Theatre and Popular Entertainment, Ian Jackson, Assistant Curator of Theatre and Popular Entertainment, Olivia Jackson, Curator of the Australian Music Vault, and Claudia Funder, Coordinator of Research Services. They gave us an amazing tour of the Arts Centre and we're very grateful. Thanks for listening, folks. If you'd like to get in touch with New Cardigan, you can find us on all the socials, which includes Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We also have a website, which is www.newcardigan.org. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Remember to keep an ear out for more Cardicasts and check out our website for events, merchandise, news and more. And remember, folks... JFDI.